Hello, uh, welcome to the latest episode of Legends of the Spire. This week we are joined by Steve Grizovich, more affectionately known as Oggy. Uh, don't worry, you're not tuning into a Coventry City podcast because that's where he's more uh, known as a legend than at Chesterfield. Uh, but what people might not know is that he started his career at Chesterfield uh, playing just under 20 games uh, with us under the Arthur Cox era in the late 1970s before getting a big move to Liverpool where he was the number two under Ray Clements in the Bob Paisley uh, massive era of Liverpool. Uh, he then moved on to Shrewsbury for a little while before going on to Coventry where he's probably uh, most recognised. Um, played loads and loads of games for Coventry, uh, played in four different decades in the top flight so knows everything there is to know about being a goalkeeper. Uh, we had a great talk about being a policeman before uh, turning pro as a footballer with Chesterfield and the pay cut that he had to do um, uh, to become so. Um, and then he talks really well just about being a goalkeeper generally and the different beasts that they are uh, really compared to other players that you get on the football pitch. Um, as always, uh, please do get in touch with us on social media channels. We are at Spire Legends on Twitter if you do want to uh, recommend a player that we speak to. Uh, but in the meantime, do enjoy episode four with the, the great Steve Oggy Agresovich. Thanks for coming on. It'll be, uh, be really good to chat about, um, about where you started, really, because obviously everyone know you, knows you as a, a Coventry legend, which you are. Um, but it obviously all started at Chesterfield, didn't it? So, um, yeah. So, I mean, as as a kid, were you were you sport mad as a kid? Oh, absolutely, sport mad. I think most most kids were those days. There was so much less to do, wasn't there, to fill your spare time? There was no internet. Uh, there was no mobile phones. Very very little on television in those days. So uh, the pastime really was to get out and play sport, and I was very fortunate. Uh, on two accounts. One, that I had a brother just a year younger than me who was sports mad as well and a very, very talented sportsman as well, whether it be football, cricket or anything else. And also uh, somebody else who uh, people might not see the connection, I don't know, because I didn't actually play with him at Chesterfield. He joined just after I left. Uh, but one, Philip Walker, Phil Walker. Yeah, yeah. He was a childhood friend. He lived down the road from me. And for years and years and years, uh, that's we played football together, cricket, uh, cricket together, socialised together, and uh, even into daughterhood, used to go on holiday with the families together. So a big friend, and probably what my brother, a big reason why we we, we actually managed to uh, form a professional career. Yeah, yeah, because because you're actually from Mansfield, aren't you? Uh... I am from Mansfield, yes, yes. For my sins, I used to support Mansfield and watch them. And uh, many times, it used to be quite a tasty affair when Chesterfield came to town, actually. Uh, there was a lot of rivalry between the fans. And uh, yeah, I've been on the terraces a few times to watch Mansfield and Chesterfield. Always wishing that one day I could be part of that game, but never realised that I'd be playing for Chesterfield and not Mansfield. Yeah, it's still a tasty affair. So hopefully we'll be in the same division again sometime soon so we can have those games again. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, so then growing up, you ended up in the police force, didn't you, rather than kind of starting off um, as a professional? Yes, yes, I did. And there's a little story there. And people of today's age will find this absolutely unbelievable and hard to imagine. 
But in those days, as a youth player, uh, there weren't the academies and the professional setups in, in football that there are now. I was a young player coming through the leagues and professional football clubs used to take you at a later age through those leagues. But from a goalkeeper's point of view, you have to imagine that uh, in those days, goalkeepers were 5'10", 5'11", 6 foot. If you were six foot one, you were massive in goal. And here was this uh, young, scrawny teenager who was nearly six foot five. And most, most football clubs, Mansfield included, who uh, I went for several trials with, thought I was far too big to play, uh, to play in goal. There were no role models. I think Joe Corrigan was the only goalkeeper who was just breaking through for Manchester City in the late 60s, early 70s, who was anywhere near my size. So the general feedback I got, I got, and I went to trials at, uh, I'm just trying to think now, Huddersfield, Sheffield United, Notts County were interested at one stage, I know that. But the general feedback was too big, can't get down to the low balls. So I quite obviously thought, well, professional football might not be the career I want, you know, the, the career I would really envy. I mean, I've, God, I so much wanted to be a professional football. I can't tell you how much I wanted to be. But around that time, I thought, this is not to be. I've been to several clubs. They've said no. Uh, it's probably time to think about what I am going to do when I finish school and find a career. And uh, I was always interested in the police force and uh, I wanted to do a job that was a little bit different uh, that would get me out of that. Not a, not a day job where you did the same thing day in, day out in an office, maybe. So, uh, yes, I joined the police force and uh, had a year or so in the police force, maybe a year and a half, actually. And at that time, I just joined Chesterfield uh, as a youth team player. And I was trying to juggle working at uh, working at the in the police force as well as playing football as often as I possibly could as well. So were you were you straight off the straight off the shift with the police and straight into training then? Is it as crazy as that? Many times I was, and more than that, uh, obviously you have annual leave and holidays, and I used to book all my holidays for Saturdays and midweek so that I could play the games. So I suppose looking back, uh, there was still a desire there to actually want to go as far as I could uh, to become a professional. It was the only thing I wanted to do more than uh, being the police force. I've got to say. And uh, yes, I used up all my annual leave uh, for Saturdays to play football. And uh, and, and I, I read somewhere that kind of with the police force, they chucked you straight in the deep end because you were quite big. <laughs> you could handle yourself. They chucked you straight into the city centre type scenario. Well, I'm going to say, being such a big fella uh, had its advantages in the police force, if maybe not at the time, in football. And uh, yes, uh, the, the day I went in, people said, oh, you're a big lad. You'll end up Nottingham City Centre looking after all the drunks and uh, kicking out all the pubs at, at night time. And I didn't know what they were on about at that time, but I soon found out and they were absolutely right. I did my police training and bang my first post in Nottingham City Central, going into the pubs, the nightclubs and everything like that and uh, making sure that there was... Uh, order on the streets and I suppose the fact that I was six foot four helped in that aspect. Yeah I'm six foot five myself so you do <laughs> get chucked Were in. you a goalkeeper? Uh, no I, I was no I, I was rubbish at football at school so they always used to stick me to fullback where, where all the I'm oh, pleased you didn't say stick you in goal. No. <laughs> that's normally where they say, "Oh, he's not very good. I'll stick him in goal." <laughs> were you always were you always a keeper? Because we talked to quite a lot of people who, oh, everyone always seems to be up front <laughs> when they were playing football as a kid. Where were you? 
Likewise, likewise, through the schools, I used to score lots and lots of goals. I, I, I played for the district and county as a striker and uh, played with the likes of Gordon Cowens, was a year younger than me, actually, but uh, Gordon used to play. Gordon was a fantastic footballer coming through, uh, uh, coming through the system. And, uh, but I was a big boy and uh, I could, you know, if somebody crossed it, uh, I could head it, I could use my physicality. So I suppose skill and pace weren't my forte at the time. And uh, even in those years, although I was performing at counter level, I think I probably knew that uh, well, certainly when I looked at the more talented footballers around me, I thought, you know what, they're going to catch me up and being an outfield footballer is probably not an option. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, so we, we've had quite a few players at Chesterfield that have done the opposite of you and, and have had a career playing with us and have then joined the police force when they've retired. Um I just wondered, is there anything, are there similarities between kind of being in a squad of footballs and being in a squad with the force that you think appeals to the mentality of people that go into sport? Uh, good question. I, I don't know. From, from a footballer's point of view, you have to be disciplined. And I, I, I was taught discipline at a very early stage. I joined the cadets before for, for probably six months or so before I actually went into uh, the police force proper, if uh, that's the way of putting it. And, uh, you know, they instill an awful amount of discipline and uh, self-appearance was important and how to conduct yourself. Also, psychologically, you know, the training was very much on uh, not getting flustered in uh, panic situations, let's say. Uh, being able to keep you calm and everybody else around you is probably losing theirs. So without actually knowing it, uh, I was probably learning some uh, some good lessons which would put me, uh, which would stand me in good stead when I started playing football because a lot of those traits you definitely need in the professional game. Yeah, one, one of those questions I was going to ask you was, um, was your experience of Nottingham City Centre kind of applicable when it came to commanding your Commanding your box from set. Uh, like <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I was naturally aggressive as a person. Uh, I think what being in the police force did do uh, when you're dealing with the public, you're going into uh, situations that you've never encountered before. It does make you grow up a little bit quicker, and you do become, uh, I don't know, probably a little bit more experienced, probably beyond the years that you actually are. So that probably helped me, and it certainly helped me because when I went to uh, Chesterfield. It was, uh, I mean, I'm quite an intense person anyway. And, you know, when you walk into a situation, you always think, my God, am I good enough for this? Am I good enough for that? I thought that when I went to Chesterfield, and I thought that when I went to every other club that I went to. So uh, it probably stood me in good stead, bearing in mind the type of personality I am. Yeah. And, and then we should go on to actually joining Chesterfield proper. So it was Arthur Cox, wasn't, wasn't it? Who was the manager at the time that, that signed well, it? Well, it it was, but I'd like to give uh, a quick mention here to uh, a guy called Alan Humphreys, who was the commercial manager at Chesterfield at the time, ex-professional footballer, very good goalkeeper, uh, started his career at Leeds of all clubs. And uh, he was running a local youth team called Onrick Old Newark Road Youth Club in Mansfield. And uh, it was him who actually uh, signed both me and Phil Walker at the same time in, and I might get the years wrong here, I think it was 1975, uh, sorry, 1976. Uh, we went to train at, at uh, Onrick, and within two sessions, Alan came over to us, the manager, and said, look, you know, I think you two are pretty decent. I'd like to take you up for a trial to Chesterfield. And uh, that's where it all started. Without Alan Humphreys, without Onrick, 
we probably would have slipped the net, both me and Phil, because we were just playing, you know, local Sunday football at the time. So that was, uh, what can I say, that was a real stroke of luck for us. And from Alan Humphrey's point of view, uh, well, I just hope that uh, Chesterfield uh, actually looked after him because, uh, you know, Phil played an awful lot of games for, uh, for, Liverpool, uh, for Chesterfield. And although I wasn't there that long, I suppose I made the club a little bit of money as well. But yeah, that's how it started. Uh, Alan Humphreys took us to Chesterfield and then we came under the tutelage of uh, Sid Lancashire and, and Alf Roberts, who was a great fella. Uh, Alf Roberts was the coach. And uh, we used to go up there once, twice a week to do the training and play in the youth team. Yeah, and then, uh, and then yeah, you, you signed, didn't you? Was it the summer of... 77 when you're about 20 was it that you actually I did do and that and that was a really big part of my career probably the first major decision I had to make as a as a human being really because uh, Arthur Cox was on the phone to say look uh, you know we like the way that you played this season we'd like to give you a chance to be a professional footballer we'd like you to uh, sign uh, a two, well, it's a two-year contract. It was a one-year contract with a one-year's option in the club's favour, which meant that if they wanted to get rid of you after one year, they could do. And if you were doing okay and they wanted to keep you, they could keep you on the same money. So it wasn't a great deal for the player, good deal for the club, but uh, you're not in a negotiating position in, in that situation. So I, I had a real choice because I've got a career I'd started that I loved. And I was thinking, if I go to be a professional footballer and it doesn't work out. How many people are actually successful in the game, I used to think. Uh, then, you know, I've thrown away a career in uh, the police force as well. So I had two bits of, uh, I'll say good advice. My, my dad, I spoke to my dad straight away. My dad was very much a, a person. Uh, he'd been down the pits himself, actually. He didn't want that for any of his sons. He wanted them to get a career. And I knew, I thought, when I talked to him, he's going to say, why are you throwing away a career? just for possibly one year. When I did speak to him, he looked at me and he said, look, he said, it's a great opportunity. You've got to do what you want to do. And that bamboozled me. I didn't really expect it from my dad. And it was fantastic advice and very, very reassuring because from, from that moment on, I thought, I'm going to do it. I then had a word with the police force and told them that, look, you know, after a year or so, uh, you know, I feel I'm going to resign because I've been offered the opportunity to be a professional footballer. And it's the only thing I want to do more than being the police force. And the chief superintendent at, uh, the, uh, at the police force at the time was, was fantastic as well. He says, look, we think you've done really well. It's been great to have you for a year or so. Please, said, if it doesn't work out in football, get back in touch, reapply. 100% we'll have you back. So all of a sudden, that very difficult decision became so much easier. I'm thinking, go and give football a go. And I've got a fallback that uh, if it doesn't work out, I potentially can go back in the police force. Yeah, so that safety net was just so... Oh, immense, immense. And uh, it had to be. And I remember the first time I, I went into Arthur Cox's uh, uh, to sign this contract, he said, right, uh, he says, this is your contract. Uh, how much are you on in, uh, in the police force? And I think it was on about £50 a week. And uh, he looked at me and says, well, we can't pay you that. He says, we'll pay you £40 a week, £5 expenses and a couple of pounds crowd money, crowd money in those days. I don't know where that came from. Uh, that's what you get in take it or leave it. And uh, he was a fearsome, he was a fearsome person. Probably the only person I've ever been scared of in my life. Uh, so uh, as quick as a fiddle, I signed it as soon as possible. Yeah, so what's, obviously I'm a, 
I'm a young fan. I don't remember Arthur Cox. So what what was he like? What was he like then as a person, as a personality? Because I know he went on to Newcastle, didn't he? And he kind of uh, was important. Well, he, he had a brilliant. He did. He had a brilliant career, didn't he? Uh, as a coach and as a manager in football. And although I didn't know it at the time, because uh, obviously he was many years older than me, he was a young coach stroke manager just starting out. I think that may have been his first managerial job. And uh, it was brilliant for me. I mean, first and foremost, he used to come and watch some of the youth games. He'd obviously seen enough on me to take a chance and uh, sign me, because I didn't think I was doing particularly that well with the under-18s. But he obviously saw something... uh, Alf Roberts must have seen something as well. And they decided to take a chance on this, uh, on this youngster. And uh, there were no such thing as goalkeeping coaches in those days. So uh, you would train with, you know, the, the number one and two goalkeepers would train together. Uh, now, during pre-season, 77, Phil Tingey was the number one goalkeeper. I think he got knee problems. So he wasn't doing an awful lot of training, which meant for large parts of training, I potentially could be on my own. Well, it wasn't that. Uh, it, the, the coach would take the uh, the football team and Arthur Cox would come over and coach me. So I had an awful lot of one-to-one time with Arthur Cox, volleying balls at me, catching high balls, crosses, lots of things that a goalkeeping coach would do now uh, whilst, uh, you know, whilst the squad was training elsewhere. Was that a bit of a bit of pressure though, having the having the manager? Lots, lots of lots of pressure, <laughs> lots of pressure. But actually, you got to know him a little bit more. I remember one particular drill we had. I, I kid you not, this was so difficult; it was untrue. But I suppose in a roundabout world, uh, way, it, uh, it it did some good. We used to the, the squad would be training around the outside of the pitch. And he would be volleying balls at me in the middle of the pitch. And when I'm saying volleying, I'd be volleying for about 10 yards, as fast as hard as he could, and he had to catch it. And every time the ball hit the ground, if I didn't catch it properly, I had to do a lap of the pitch, a lap of Saltergate. And uh, this would be in the middle of summer, so it was quite warm as well. So, you know, I suppose it was a way of actually building up a little bit of pressure in the training that you did. And the lap was a proper lap. It wasn't a jog, go as slow as you want. You know, he'd be on the clock saying, come on, quicker, quicker, quicker. I mean, it was very, uh, it was a disciplinarian in lots of ways. And he also believed in having a really fit fit squad. So, uh, yeah, so I did lots and lots of laps around Saltergate, trust me, uh, whilst I was trying to improve as a footballer. But your legs were turning to jelly, weren't they? <laughs> After a few laps. Well, they were, and the rest of the squad used to laugh because Frank Barlow was the was the coach at the time, and uh, he'd be coaching the team, and he'd say, "There, Rocky goes again, all the way around the pitch," <laughs> and uh, you know they'd be playing their five sides or whatever they were doing. I'd be doing the running and the goalkeeping all in one. <laughs> so, what was the what was the personality of the rest of the squad like? There was a quite a few big names in that squad, wasn't there? Yeah, brilliant, actually. We had uh, probably an older squad uh, than what a lot of teams at that level have now. Uh, we had some good old heads in the likes of uh, Rod Fern. Len Badger was, I think he'd broken his leg and uh, he was just uh, recuperating in that summer. Uh, who else? I mean, Bill Dearden came a little bit later on in the season. And uh, I'm trying to think, Will Smith, he was another one with a Coventry connection, funnily enough, had come down and he'd also got a number of injuries. So he had some uh, 
really old, experienced players who played at the top level. I mean, Will Smith, I think, had played in an FA Cup final, hadn't he? 1966 for Sheffield Wednesday. I was whew, in awe of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just to watch these uh, more experienced players on television was enough for me to uh, be a little bit starstruck, I think. But then intermingled with that, uh, the squad looked after me. I, I can name the squad. I mean, the, we had the... Colin Tart at right back joined, I think, at some stage that year. John Cotton at centre back with Sean O'Neill. Sean O'Neill, fantastic guy, by the way, and John Cotton as well. I used to share a car with John Cotton and Andy Kowalski every day from Mansfield, so we'd share it. Kenny Burton, really good left back. Alan Jones, I thought he was the best right winger I've ever seen. These names might not be familiar to you, by the way. But the Chesterfield players of a certain age, they will remember him. He was a jinky winger. Every team had a jinky winger. Uh, I mentioned Andy in midfield, lovely. Ricky Epperlitz, uh, Dave Bentley, lovely guy who uh, actually went on to coach at Chesterfield for a yeah. long time after his playing days. And then uh, up front, the likes of, uh, like I say, Rod, Rod Fern, Stuart Park, I think Ricky Green came in at that period. And there, there were other players as well, you know, the younger players that I associated, Gary Simpson, uh, Les Hunter. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, you know, there were lots. Mm. Yeah, and then your debut, I think it was against Port Vale, I think, uh, your debut. Um, do you remember Do you remember your debut? I remember being absolutely scared, senseless, yes. Debuts in those days were such a... I mean, crikey, if you mentioned to players now, uh, you made your Division Three debut away at Port Vale, it's no big deal. But in those days, to me, it was a big deal. I'm amazed how young footballers of today take all this in the in, in stride, because I can tell you... Arthur Cox told me I was playing on Friday. I think we played a couple of games, if memory serves me correct, against uh, Barnsley. Uh, and we'd, we'd let quite a few goals in. Phil Tingey was playing with a knee injury anyway. And Arthur Cox took a very bold decision, I suppose, at the time, to play this young, untried uh, goalkeeper who'd only been <coughs> professional for a couple of months. Threw me in at the deep end uh, on that first day of the season, and uh, thankfully, he only gave me 24 hours' notice uh, to sweat and worry about it. Uh, went to the game, uh, it was a blur. I managed to make a decent save in the first 20 minutes, which settled me down, I've got to say. The game went pretty well, we won away from home. They scored albeit a penalty. I look back on that penalty. I got so close to saving it as well. Uh, maybe maybe I, I look at it now and I think I should have saved it. But uh, anyway, we won it 3-1. And, uh, you know, from then on, I made my debut and I just felt so much better. And the one thing I kept thinking, well, do you know what? If I don't play another game, at least I can say I was a professional football when I played in the league. That's how much it absolutely meant to me. Yeah. And, and I think with... With supporters, they can usually smell fear when you've got a new keeper or a young keeper, uh, and obviously give them a bit of stick as you're running towards the towards the goal. Does that does that make it a little bit harder as a goalkeeper when you're having to to run to the uh, fans behind you? Well, it's interesting. It, it was things that I'd experienced for the first time. I did actually find playing against bigger crowds was easier than playing when there's just a few hundred people there because you don't quite hear the individual insults the way that you would do uh, if there's one man and his dog. So uh, I didn't find that aspect of it too difficult. I don't know if the training in the police force helped a little bit to, you know, with that. But uh, no, I quite enjoyed it. I, you know, it's the first time I played in front of fans and uh, it, it was a really good experience. It's something that you, 
that you always hope you you would do. And and actually, what was really nice is when you made a save, you got an applause and a cheer, and all of a sudden you might hear the fans start chanting your name. It was fantastic for the ego and made you feel really confident. Not so good when you weren't doing things so well or they were shouting, well, they didn't shout Dodger Keeper in those days. That came a little bit later. But uh, yeah, they'd let you know about it if you weren't playing well as well. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, did you find did you find yourself um, finding your feet pretty quickly then? Um... Amazingly, yes. Uh, by virtue of the fact results were good, we weren't letting in very many goals. I mean, I played the first eighteen and nineteen games. We played Manchester City in a cup tie. I mean, that was a an experience in itself with all those stars playing for them. Um, got beat 1-0 in that game. But we weren't shipping in a lot of goals. I think I let less goals in in those uh, games than actually the appearances I made. So I was quite proud of that. And uh, and I was very well protected, really, by an experienced back four. They were, they were brilliant. They taught me through situations. If I made mistakes, you know, they said, look, don't worry about it. We've all done it. You know, let's get on with the next one. So they were brilliant. And I got through those pretty well and was really, really enjoying the experience. Yeah. And then I think you're... Last game was with us, I think, was against Bradford. Uh, got a clean sheet uh, against uh, Bradford in a win. Um, did you? When did you first hear that Liverpool were interested? Was it a bit of a bolt out of the blue, or was it something that was uh, a while? It, well, the Bradford game was the Saturday. We're going in training Friday, and Will Smith was sat in his car as he always did in the morning. If he got there early, and he was reading, I presume it was the Sun or something like that. As I'm getting out of the car, he's smiling to me, and he's just doing this, pointed to the paper. What's he on about? And uh, you know, when I got inside, a few of the players were talking about, "Hey, Liverpool are watching you." And apparently there'd been a little snippet in uh, one or two of the papers to say that the scouts had been to Coventry game, uh, to keep saying Coventry, to Chesterfield games, and uh, they were interested in the young uh, young goalkeeper. I mean, I, I didn't know what to believe. I thought, no, that's just a load of rubbish. And uh, the manager poo-pooed it, said nothing about it, picked me for the Bradford game. Uh, I think we won 2-0, kept a clean sheet, so I was happy about that. And it was after that game, Arthur Cox called me into the office and said, look, We've had an offer from Liverpool uh, for, you know, for you to go up there. We will be accepting it and you will be going, which meant they desperately wanted the money. He didn't say, look, we like you here. You're doing a good job. You don't have to go. Or, you know, it was a great opportunity. But uh, Arthur Cox says I was going. If Arthur Cox says I was going, I was going. <laughs> and uh, that, that's, really, that's really how it all happened. So in those days, did you not have any say over, <laughs> over where you went? Well, <laughs> I suppose I could have done, and I should have had the strength of character to go, well, oh, no, Arthur, I, you know, let me think about this at least. I was absolutely scared stiff to be going to Liverpool, in all honesty. I thought it was too early, but then I thought as well, what a great opportunity to carry on and probably learn all about uh, goalkeeping and professional football from the very, very best team, not just in Europe, but in the world at the time. They were absolutely magnificent. I was going to be training and playing and learning by Ray Clements and... Uh, God bless him who died recently and uh, that was really tragic. But, you know, what better apprenticeship could you have than, than actually working with him day in, day out? And uh, from the day I walked into uh, Anfield, and I was very starstruck, I've got to say, because I kept thinking, gosh, only a few months ago I was on the police force uh, with actually probably no real belief that I would ever be a professional football. There I was, I was in the European Champions changing room, changing the next to Kenny Dalglish, Ray Clemens, Phil Thompson, Emlyn Hughes was in there, all the players. And uh, 
they, they were brilliant. The, the one thing that I really did notice about them, they were so level-headed. There were, there were no egos in there. You would have expected egos with a team and players so good. No egos. They were just fantastic. They came over. They made me feel at home. Kenny Dalglish came up in the first week whilst I was there and said, look, why don't you come round to uh, dinner with uh, me and my wife uh, one evening? This was Kenny Dalglish, 550000 They just paid for him. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I was so nervous. I, I politely refused. I was desperate to go, but I politely refused because I thought I'd be hamstrung. I wouldn't dare say a word. Uh, but... You know, that, that's just how homely and inviting the club was. And, and Chesterfield made a good profit from you, didn't, didn't they? I think it was about, was it about 65,000 or something? something. <laughs> I think it was 70, 72,500, I think it was, which, you know, in today's money sounds like nothing, but then it was an awful lot of money and the club needed it and, and it helped, I think, for them in, in future years. So the, I think that was the reason why Arthur Cox was desperate for me to go because... You know, you could do a lot of uh, you could do a lot of things with seventy two thousand in those days. Yeah, and um, um, it might be rude to ask, but were you were you finally getting paid more than you were in the police? <laughs> yeah, I was getting. Well, that was the other big thing as well. I mean, I just could not believe, uh, you know, just how much uh, more money you got paid uh, sitting on the bench room really, or sitting on the bench being a reserve. Now that aspect of it was very good. I suppose that helps to set you up for the rest of your life. Yeah, and and that. Those first few weeks with Liverpool, were they were they obviously a massive attacking players at, at Liverpool? Were they giving you a proper test in training just to see see how good you were? <laughs> well, the one that I mean, again, goalkeeping coaches weren't around in those days. So me and Ray Clements would go off and train probably twice, twice, three times a week uh, for maybe an hour bit of cells, which was just brilliant to have a one to one with Ray Clements was uh, you know everything you could want. But I also felt I needed more beyond that. And uh, football in those days uh, just wasn't set up to be like that. So you did an actual, an awful lot of playing five-a-side football and keep ball with, with the squad as an outfield player. And I just remember in those first few days, I'd be dizzy chasing the ball in circles. You know, the vision and touch and everything like that was just so good. And you just realised just, you know, what quality players these guys are. So, uh, yeah, you know, you quickly, I suppose... You know, playing with better players helps you raise your standards quicker. That, that's for sure. And uh, again, it was still a whirlwind for me because everything was so new. Uh, and they kept saying, well, you've come as a, a number two to Ray Clemens, but don't be expecting any games. He's not missed one for seven years. And there was lots of understudies that had gone before me without ever playing. And then unbeknown, you know, out of the blue in March of 78, so we only talking a few months later, Ray Clemens actually gets injured. The city of Liverpool couldn't believe it. The great Ray Clements is injured. And uh, I managed to uh, end up make well, play two games, actually. My debut was at Derby, away from home, which uh, we actually lost that one 4-2. And uh, then I played at Anfield the following Saturday against Leeds in front of 51,000, which was miles more than anything I'd ever played for in front of my life. And thankfully, I kept a clean sheet and we won that one 1-0. So there was... Uh, you know, there was the bittersweet memories of my debut as well. Did you did you ever get any of the the Chesterfield players kind of asking you for <laughs> asking you for tickets or or autographs? Of well, yeah, I mean, listen, I I, I, was, I always kept uh, in close contact with lots of the Chesterfield players. Obviously, with Phil, you know, I used to see him regularly. And in, incidentally, when I left Liverpool, I think Phil then signed within a month or so as the professional footballer for Chesterfield. 
And uh, I used to come back, uh, I used to come back every week. And, uh, you know, eventually I ended up marrying a girl from Chesterfield. And uh, th that's where most of my social life was at weekends. I come home, I see my parents, uh, go over and see my girlfriend, and eventually married in, uh, in, in Kerber in, the, uh, in Chesterfield in 1981, a long time ago now, but that's reminding me. It's our Ruby wedding anniversary this year, I mustn't forget. <laughs> Get it in the diary. <laughs> And yeah, and then you're you're kind of part of a, a a European cup final, aren't you? Like, and it's like the meteoric change in your life from being in the police to being there must just have been been bonkers. And obviously, you uh, you, you didn't play in it, but you must just be sat there thinking, "What?" <laughs> when all that's happening, I, I absolutely was. I can tell you. I mean, the great thing, one of the great things about going to uh, Liverpool was. You weren't, you weren't on the bench for league games as you are now as an understudy, but for European games, you were. You had five subs, one was a goalkeeper. So you obviously enjoyed the, uh, you know, the foreign travel, the experiences playing clubs from other countries. Even though you were sat on the bench, you had to be ready at any moment to go on. Uh, as Sphinx found out for Aston Villa a few years later, you know, at any one moment, you can be on that pitch. And in that first year, I mean, uh, Liverpool were defending the European Cup that, that, that year and they success, successfully defended it. We, uh, we played at Wembley against Bruges in, when was it? Was it May? I think the end of May 1978 and uh, 100,000 people there. Again, another unbelievable experience. I was actually at Wembley, a place I'd only seen on television and thought I'd never get anywhere near it. I was actually there warming up on the pitch, sitting on the bench thinking at any moment I could actually be on here in the European Cup final. And you're right. I used to think back this time a year ago, I was in the police force, I was playing for uh, I was playing for Chesterfield youth team, thinking that, you know, I probably will never ever become a professional footballer. And yet in the space of less than a year, I'd signed as a professional footballer, made my debut in the third division, been transferred to the best club in the world, made my debut for that club. And here I was sitting in a European Cup final on the bench at Wembley about to receive a European Cup winner's medal. Surreal, just couldn't take it all in. What was the kind of reserve team structure like back then? Did you did you get to play, because obviously you're not playing in the first team um, a lot, so what was the structure like in terms of actually playing games? Did you get, get some... Structure was a lot better then. Uh, what you used to do uh, on a Saturday, it was called the Central League, and if you weren't in the first team, you played in the Central League reserve team. He played on a Saturday at three o'clock. Roy Evans was our manager. And literally, I think there was one substitute allowed at the time for the first team. It was not a case of we'll rest you. There was, there was no rotation of players or anything like that. If you were not in that first team, 12 or 13, you played in the reserves. So the Central League was a very, very strong league, full of lots of experienced players. When I, uh, when I played for the Central League, we, we could have seven or eight ex-internationals or into current internationals even playing in our team. We once played Manchester United and I counted up, I think they had eight current internationals and we had seven, you know, I say current, recent that had played. I mean, you know, they were very, very uh, competitive games and experienced games, not like they are now. And I think that's one of the, you know, that, that's where you probably learn most about your football playing these games, playing with experienced players. I would play with Phil Thompson, with Emlyn Hughes in front of me, uh, you know, a, a number of others. And, you know, they, they would talk you through the game and tell you where you should be, where you shouldn't be. The same as when I was at Chesterfield, Sean, Sean O'Neill and John Cotton in front of me. 
and you listened and uh, you'd be a silly person not to listen to the amount of experiences that all those people would have at various levels of the game and thankfully you know things go in and then you you start to build your own thoughts and experience as well in the game. Did you did you have any crowds in those games or were they behind closed doors? Yeah yeah crowds were crowds were not bad at, uh, at Liverpool we were probably average, I'm guessing, but there'd be anything from two, three, four thousand, five thousand, something like that. Sometimes as many as what was at the Chesterfield games. And I'm led to believe even years before that, the Central League crowds were a lot bigger. It's, I, don't, I don't think it was, uh, it, it wasn't unusual, I think, for a Manchester derby or a, a Liverpool derby to attract sometimes 15, 20,000. And uh, I don't think I actually experienced that in, in the derbies at that time when I played, but certainly a few years before there had been those numbers. Yeah, and then, and then after you know, four or five years, you ended up moving on to um, Shrewsbury. Um, I did do, yeah, because much as I'd had a meteoric rise in that first year, uh, what people were saying started to come true, and they were right, Ray Clements doesn't get injured. <laughs> And uh, he was England's goalkeeper with Peter Shilton. And, you know, so I, I ended up having quite a number of years there just playing reserve team football, Central League football. We had such a good side that we were winning the league every year. And as a goalkeeper, you got very little to do. So I felt that I, I did actually feel that my career was starting to uh, parallel out and I wasn't going anywhere. And I thought, you know, I'm getting to an age now in early mid-20s where I actually need to put some experience, some games uh, together, you know, if I'm going to do anything uh, in the game, I mean, Liverpool were happy for me to stay on the bench and fill in if uh, Ray Clements was injured. Uh, but I felt I needed more. I said, you know, that's just the type of person I probably am. So I actually took the step of, you know, asking Bob Paisley for a move. And uh, I managed to go to Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury were a good side in those days. They were Division Two then, which is Championship now. And they were a good championship side. I think the first year we, we played there, I think we finished probably seventh, eighth, ninth. We were in the top four uh, by, uh, in Christmas. And, you know, I, again, I just had a brilliant two years there. I didn't get injured, played every game. Things really went well. And I felt that I'd then got some experience of actually playing games and I was benefiting from the experience I'd learned at Chesterfield and at Liverpool and putting them together in professional football, actually playing. Yeah, and and kind of going back a little bit in terms of asking Bob Paisley in terms of wanting to transfer, uh, was, what was the, uh, was there any similarities between Arthur Cox and, and Bob Paisley in terms of their, their style? No. Were they no, absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, Bob Paisley was very laid back. Uh, he'd have his office at Anfield. That's where we used to train before we went to Melwood. He'd have his, his carpet slippers on. He would, come and watch training, uh, but never get involved, never get involved in the coaching. He was just purely a manager. He had eyes, very, very good eyes, obviously, very experienced, uh, a good feel for things. I could see a good player. You could see all that in him, but very laid back. And uh, he had all these other coaches to be able to do the other things. Whereas Arthur Cox, it was such a smaller unit. Frank Barlow was his coach, Arthur Cox was the manager. Those two ran the football club and uh, every decision uh, had to be theirs. Uh, when you were training, they had to be there. They, they were hands-on as well as having to do the other things as well. So totally different. And uh, from an intensity point of view, 
Arthur Cox was a lot more fearsome than Bob Paisley was in a very nice way because uh, Arthur Cox was brilliant for me and uh, you know I, without him I may never ever have been a professional footballer. Yeah. Maybe it was good to have them that way around rather than... Uh, ab- absolutely and uh, you need lots and uh, listen the way Arthur Cox managed was very very similar to how managers did manage in those days. Uh, you know you got uh, the probably rule with a rod of iron but you also got you know, a comforting uh, arm around the shoulders at the times when you needed it most. So, you know, they were, they were born psychologists themselves. They knew when to hit the players, you know, and when to uh, pick them up. And uh, I think that was the real art and probably still is of being a successful manager. Yeah. And then, and then we go on to obviously what you're most well known for is moving to Coventry and starting off there. Um, would you, were you quite happy to? Stay at Shrewsbury a bit longer, or um... no, no. Uh, again, I was—I suppose uh, at the time I wanted to play at the top level. After being four years at Liverpool, I felt I could play at the top level. I thought it was unrealistic for some top-level team to take me as a number one, having only played eighteen games for uh, Chesterfield. So I went down the league with the intention of getting the experience. If things go well, of being able to bounce back and uh, and play regular. First, first division football as it, as it was then and uh, you know I look back at it now and I thought well the plan worked perfectly it could have gone so horribly wrong I'm sure but it did work perfectly because I, I had two really good years at Shrewsbury uh, again and I've been fortunate actually I've, I've, I've had a great time with every club that I've been to uh, again managed to stay injury free so played every single game for them we had a good team we had a young team great manager in uh, Graham Turner and at the end of that two years, I signed a two-year contract. At the end of two years, uh, Graham Turner knew that I wanted to go to, uh, you know, back in the first division if I could do. And uh, I made myself available and, and that's when Coventry came in. Yeah. And then, and then yeah, I, I was, I was going to ask because you played, what, 241 consecutive games at Coventry? Have I got that right? Um, yeah, I think you have. Yeah, again, uh, I was very lucky with injuries because from the very first game I played, for Chesterfield, uh, and then all my time at Liverpool, if you call the, if you count the Central League games, which was probably nigh on four years, two years at Shrewsbury, and then I think it was a further four or five years at Chesterfield. I never ever missed a game. I think the first game in football I missed through injury or illness was when I was 29. So I count myself very, very fortunate that I've got a very durable body that managed to uh, take the loads and stresses of training and games without breaking down. Yeah. Um, could you then relate to your number two at Coventry? Because um, obviously you'd experienced yes. that at Liverpool. Well, I did, I did do, and, and again, it's your early experiences that stand you in good stead. And uh, I walked into Anfield and it was Ray Clements never gets injured. He plays all the games. That's, that's what the fans thought. That's what the players thought. That's what everybody thought. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, you know, brilliant. Just stayed fit, played. You know, he knew, he knew when to play. He would never play when he wasn't fit enough to play. But... Uh, I think I think the boundaries were extended more in those days than probably what they are now, that's for sure. And uh, that was my philosophy as well. I was the first team goalkeeper. I wasn't going to give it up for, you know, an aching ankle or a, a bruised elbow or something like that for a number two to go in and show that they can do it better than you. So uh, it was a case, right, I'm number one. I'm going to stay number one and you keep that position as long as possible. Thankfully, there was no rotation of positions then or... 
uh, your number two playing in cup games. You played every single game, and when you were fit, you played. And you, you knew where you were. Do you think goalkeepers are a bit different in that respect then to some to some other outfield positions? <coughs> You feel the pressure of losing your, losing your place a little bit more? No, I think, yes, I think there, there can be some aspect of that. Whether it's quite the same now, because as I say, you, you talk about rotation now. So, you know, you can have a top goalkeeper who just suddenly doesn't play in a cup game or, uh, you know, or a whole cup competition if they get to the final. You, you know, that's not unusual these days. So that's accepted now. But certainly in my days, it was a case of, the number one's the number one and it's it's up to the number two to try and wrestle that position from you and the only way they can do it hopefully is playing in the reserves don't give them an opportunity to play in the first team and show they can do a better job that's the mentality you have to have as a as a professional sportsman i think you know you you have to be strong very strong willed and uh, be dedicated and be concentrated and, and never ever sit back and relax and think, well, this is it now. It's, you, you know, it's a nice, comfortable life and this is going to be your life forever. Never, ever think like that because as soon as you do, you start to get sloppy and it's a very, it's, it's a lot quicker on the way down than it is on the way, way up, that's for sure. Yeah, there was a goalkeeper's union, people talked about it. If you're in the player bar after the game uh, and the other goalkeeper was over there, you'd always go and have a chat with them and got to know them probably better than what you would do other outfield players. Uh, it's a good story about that, actually, because uh, I know it was in one of your questions you were going to ask me, actually, but I'll bring it up now. Uh, I was lucky I was at Chesterfield to score a goal at Sheffield Wednesday, uh, direct from uh, my area, and uh, it was a windy, rainy day. I punted the ball long. It's bounced over the goalkeeper, who was Martin Hodge at the time, and uh, went in the goal. And oh, I scored the goal in professional football. Things are getting better and better. <laughs> but I did feel a little bit for Martin Hodge. And uh, I got to know Martin quite well. You know, uh, I knew him before then because he'd had some time at uh, Everton whilst I was at Liverpool. And uh, we got talking. I've seen him on holiday uh, a number of times in other situations. And we always have a good long chat. The one thing we never, ever mention is that goal going in. The embarrassment of me having to mention it is just not there. Now, I know, I'm absolutely sure he's thinking while we're talking, this fellow scored a goal through me, and he knows that I'm thinking, I've scored the goal through you. But we never, ever mention it. I think that's something to do with the goalkeepers' union and just understanding just how, uh, you know, what, you know, how difficult a position it can be. Yeah, and when you score a goal like that... Uh... Do you just yeah? Do you just feel a bit embarrassed then? You don't you don't want to celebrate celebrate it really. Well, then, no, not not no, in those days. Celebrations were not like they're not they're not orchestrated now. I, I didn't have some kind of dance routine that I could just go into. It was just uh, well, well. The first thing was, does the referee know the rules, or is he going to disallow it? Uh, because there was talk in those days that uh, a direct kick from your hands has got to touch another player. Absolute rubbish. Uh, but, you know, some people thought they were the rules. So I was just hoping at the time the referee knew the rules. He did, obviously, blew, blew for a goal. And, uh, yeah, you just stand there waiting for your teammates to come to you and congratulate you. And uh, I suppose you only realise that you've done something that very, very few goalkeepers have done, certainly fewer then, even, uh, after the event when people remind you. Yeah, and I was going to ask as well about saving penalties because you've saved a few, haven't you, uh, over the years. Um, and, and one of the common reactions you get when a goalkeeper saves a penalty if it goes out for a corner or whatever, they're trying to 
push the teammates away as quick as they can for them to try and get a set for a set for the corner in, instead. Um, yeah, I mean, did you have a did you have a have a, a style or a tactic in terms of saving penalties? Uh, I had a few. I had a few things. I, whether they were more successful than other goalkeepers or not, I don't know. I, I saved a fair percentage of penalties. I would say not a great deal more than anybody else. Uh, not a great deal less. Uh, I mean, often I used to. I'd study penalty takers. I would. Uh, I would actually. You would always know who was going to be the penalty taker nine times out of ten. And as soon as a penalty uh, was given, I would eyeball that. Per- when I say eyeball, I wouldn't look at him. Uh, so that he could see me looking at him. I'd look away, but out the corner of my back, I'd be watching him. And I used to always think that the place where they look, when they think I'm not looking at them, will be the place they put it. And uh, I had a little bit of success with that at times, not always. Uh, sometimes I'd put it the other side and I'd think, well, that one didn't work. And then the other one, I'd try and lean one way, go the other way early and then go back the other way to see if that would work. I had some success with that sometimes, not always. So I don't know, I think uh, probably luck plays a massive part in penalty saving. If you go the right way, you've got a chance of saving it and uh, that's what you try and do. Yeah. And... Um... And yeah, in terms of like keeping up your concentration during a match, of how do you how do you try and stay stay alert? Obviously, you've had a few seasons where you're in relegation scraps anyway, so you you're getting a bit, yeah. a bit of the action anyway. Um, but then there's a fair few games when you're maybe a bit quieter. So what do you do to try and keep your concentration up throughout that match? Uh, good question. Number of years ago since I've had to do that actually, but uh, I suppose really you. you as a goalkeeper, you stood there. It's a lonely place to be for large parts of the game. And, and you're quite right. You might, uh, you know, you might not be in the action for 70, 80 minutes. But the one thing I used to always say, and again, this was drilled into me at Liverpool. I mean, Liverpool were a classic team that uh, was so good. Ray Clemens wouldn't get lots of work. But they used to always say he had the best concentration in the game. And in the 80th minute, the 85th minute, the one save he would have to make, he would always make. And that's the art of being a truly good goalkeeper. Is uh, it's, it's quite easy when teams are peppering you left, right, and centre every every minute of the day because you're rising uh, to uh, you know to use a cricket uh, likeness really. So you're rising, but uh, when you know for long periods when you're not involved, you have to keep your concentration. So you have to think positively. If you've made a mistake early in the game, don't let it prey on your mind, and you have to be ready. And uh, like I used to say as a coach to uh, you know all the goalkeepers is you know you've got to be ready. And even though you've had nothing to do, at some stage you will get a save, and you've got to be ready for it. And that's all you can do. Yeah, and then we've got to mention winning an FA Cup because. Um... And I'm right in that game, aren't you? That you were kind of up against Ray Clements at the again. At you the, were, uh, yeah. Tottenham Hotspur, Tottenham Hotspur, 1987. Uh, Ray Clements had moved on from Liverpool by then, and uh, probably the highlight of my of my whole career is to actually play at Wembley in an FA Cup final. People won't understand just how big FA Cup uh, or the FA Cup uh, trophy was then. It was just a fantastic competition, so big. Uh, I don't know, teams then used to say, would you rather win a league or an FA Cup? And it was 50-50, it was split. That's how big the FA Cup was. There was no rotation. I mentioned that a number of times. You played your best side. The fans came out in droves to watch the games. And 
I, for one, spent many years as a young player, uh, as a young person, watching FA Cup finals on television. They were such a massive occasion then because you went from seeing very, very few live games a year. This was not only live on TV, but it dominated the whole of Saturday. You'd put the TV on at eight o'clock in the morning and you wouldn't turn it off till after the game at six o'clock. And it would just be minute to minute, you know, it was just wall-to-wall football. Never, ever had those experiences in those days. So that built up the, uh, the you know, that, that built up the, I don't know, the whatever the, the FA Cup was really. So to actually be there and playing was uh, just something else. And uh, I had some fantastic years at uh, Coventry. That was the highlight, obviously. And I feel so very, very lucky, I've got to say, that you know I can actually play in an FA Cup final and have a winner's medal. Do you remember, do you remember Chesterfield's Cup run in 1997 uh, when they got to the semis? Yeah, I do remember. I remember they being, they were very unfortunate. Middlesbrough, wasn't it? And they actually had, a, was it a disallowed goal that hit the bar, yeah, went over the yeah. line? Yeah, so what could have been? They were so so near yet so far. They had a really good team. They had lots of good teams, actually, over the years, Chesterfield. And, uh, you know, they feel a little bit robbed in that game in that year. I do remember fantastic cup run. And uh, it was a shame it ended that way. Yeah, it would have been nice to have been in the final, but uh, <laughs> you can't go back. Um, yeah, so then you've, you've I'm, I think I'm right in saying this, you've played played in the top flight in four different decades and there's not many people that have uh, that have done that. No, John Luca, no, who's from Chesterfield. Um, he is, well, you know, a good, good friend of John Luca, again, part of, the, uh, part of the goalkeepers' union, but also uh, we had that connection of being from Chesterfield, so I used to see him quite regularly, uh, you know, anyway, from, from week to week. And, uh, yeah, very, very lucky. So, uh, yeah, my first game was, uh, where was well, certainly at the top level was for Liverpool against Derby in 77. And the last was 2000 against Sheffield Wednesday at Highfield Road, which was the last game I ever played. Yeah. And, and how did it change in terms of the, uh, in terms of how you played as a goalkeeper over those years? Because obviously the position's changed a bit, hasn't it, in terms of... Um, you know, there's a bit more well, certain things like that nowadays. Well, it has. Uh, well, if we start with the with the early days, whenever I did something, I went onto a pitch. So if I made a save, it was always the giant Grizovic made this save or that save or drop, you know, a rollerkeer or whatever. It was always the giant. Uh, so that was the first uh, thing that that changed. By the end of my career, there's a team photograph of Coventry. We had four goalkeepers. I was the smallest of them at six foot five. We had Magnus Edmund, who was just a bit bigger than me. Chris Kirkland was six foot six, seven. And a goalkeeper called Mortensen, a Danish boy, who was about six foot nine. Uh, enormously, well, six foot nine is an exaggeration, but he was, he was, was the biggest out of the four of us. And there I was, smaller. So you can see just how uh, things have evolved over the years. You know, goalkeepers, taller goalkeepers have been the norm. They're the ones that coaches and managers uh, want. And I'd like to think Joe Corrigan was the first one I can remember. Then there was probably myself, who was probably that size. And, and gradually, John Lukic was a big fella himself. And gradually, I think people saw maybe the, uh, the sensibility of trying to have a big goalkeeper, if at all possible. Yeah, I mean, having, signing a goalkeeper that's under six foot nowadays would be, you'd get some questions. Oh, you don't see them, no. In fact, I have to say, when I'm coaching goalkeepers, and, and particularly young goalkeepers who are incredibly good at 14 or 15, 
and you look at them and, and the first thing you know people are saying well how big are they going to be I bet it's not going to be big enough and it's very difficult to say to a child at that age we don't think you're going to be big enough and uh, I, I actually try to not do that uh, and actually say well look it, it's tougher for you at that size but you know if, you, if you're good enough you're big enough and it's a case of some of the best goalkeepers I've seen actually they're like rubber dolls they bounce all over the place make tremendous saves brilliant reflexes we're not that big and uh, you know they, you know they're very very quick around the goal. But the problem you have if you're not big is when the ball's in the air, and it is a lot of the time. Certainly in my uh, uh, when I was playing football, you had to be able to deal with lots of uh, balls into the box, aerial balls, playing against strikers that were getting taller and taller as well. Uh, difficult if you're a six foot goalkeeper dealing with a couple of six foot three, six foot four strikers. And uh, you, you just get more and more of that now. It's more, more physicality. And I think the other thing as well, uh, coaches, people, uh, they understand that uh, the big goalkeepers, you know, or, or players that are quite big, uh, when the, the age is 14 to 16, maybe even younger, may not look particularly good because they're going through growing spurts. They're like Bambi on ice, I was. Uh, you may not look, the, you know, as if you've got any ability whatsoever at that age, but they know when that you grow into your body, you will become something. And uh, I think that's been proven with a number of big players, not just in goal, but uh, all around the pitch now. Players are so much bigger now than what they were a few generations ago. Yeah, well, I can remember, like, growing up at school, I was by far the tallest person in the class, whereas nowadays you look around and most People that are walking to school are about the same size as me. I don't know. Everyone just seems to have got bigger. <laughs> well, you're right. Well, six foot five is still big now. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. So size 11 shoes uh, when I was 18, you couldn't, you had to go to lots of shoe shops to get size 11, size 11 and a half in those days. I'm speaking to players now looking at their boots. They're wearing size 13 or 14 and they're not as big as me now. It's incredible uh, with evolution how much bigger, particularly people's shoe sizes have got, that's for sure. Yeah. Either that or they're making them smaller. <laughs> and then kind of to, to finish off, um, to go round uh, right back to the beginning. Um, so I just wondered if you still looked out for Chesterfield results and, and what was happening. Um, always, always, yeah. Always remember where I started. I've got, a, like I say, a real uh, affinity for Chesterfield as a football club. Chesterfield as an area, as I say, my wife was uh, from there. It's the place we used to socialise a lot with my friends. And uh, always look out for Chesterfield's results, as I do for Shrewsbury. Uh, obviously, Chesterfield, because I ended up, uh, sorry, obviously, Coventry, because I ended up coaching there for 20 years after retiring. So, uh, I mean, Coventry has just been a, a massive, massive part of my life and uh, feel very uh, honoured that I've been given that opportunity to do that. So, uh, you know, football's been a great life for me. But, yeah, absolutely do look back at all my ex-teams, particularly Chesterfield, and I feel for them at the moment uh, with the situation they're in. I mean, you know, they've got a lovely stadium, a new stadium there. It's only a few years ago I was there with Coventry as a coach and they were in Division One. And, uh, you know, they're not having the best of times at the moment, but hopefully uh, they will rise again. They will be back in the leagues and, uh, you know, they'll be on to better things.